you would turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 7. I'm going to read the whole chapter this morning. <clears throat> Oftentimes when we are trying to put together the whole worship service, uh, it is meant to be a, a gospel story as it unfolds. So sometimes uh, even the songs that are chosen, the passages of Scripture that are read are tried to help you see the whole story as it's given to us in Scripture. So that first song has sort of a minor key to it, uh, is, is pleading from Psalm 5 against the wicked uh, as they oppress the, the righteous. Um, this is a, a type of song that the, the Jews would have been singing at the time that they're undergoing the persecution under Haman, you see. And then throughout, we're uh, getting a lighter tone where we're trusting in, in Christ and, and our confidence in Him uh, with, with some of those sweeter songs that, that probably many of you would prefer. And then the last hymn that we'll sing uh, today, again, is a, a minor key, but this time more contemplative and confessional in nature. Uh, so keep in mind, I'm not trying to leave you on a sour note, but uh, always to understand what it is that we're looking to and our confidence is in Christ that... Uh, as much as we love Christ and love his grace, we hate our sin. That's part of the reason why we're ending in that way. So, But with that being said, uh, this is a great passage we have before us this morning. Esther chapter 7, hear the word of the Lord. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request, even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king." Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house. 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let's pray to the Lord. Father, we ask that as we come before your word and as we humble ourselves and, and, and receive your word with faith and with love and a zeal that comes from heaven, we, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe your word, 
to trust your word, to stand upon the promises in your word, and to receive the corrections of your word. We pray that in all ways your word would be as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that you would give us not only guidance, but life through it as we find the gospel of Christ in it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On the way out of church, last Sunday morning, I had a couple different people ask me, when is Haman ever going to die? When is he ever going to get his? Well, I think uh, if you think it's a while for us to get to that good part, if you will, when justice rolls down like a river, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, you can imagine how Mordecai and the Jews felt, right? waiting for this day to unfold, longing for a day in which righteousness is finally revealed, a day in which God's justice is seen here on earth, as the psalmist asks so pathetically, How long, O Lord? How long is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? How long will your people be trampled underfoot? How long shall the wicked exult? That's the question, the recurring question throughout Scripture. How long, even in Revelation, we see the souls under the altar asking the same question, how long? It's the question that we're asking, the concern that we have. Do we not also long for a day of justice and when finally we see righteousness here on earth? Is that not something you want? Something you desire? It may not be the daily cry of the average Christian here on earth. It certainly is of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are under the cruel tyranny of megalomaniac men and and brutal regimes of local warlords. Many saints throughout the world are regularly praying through what we call the imprecatory psalms. Those psalms that call down God's judgment and curses upon the enemies of the Lord. It might seem strange to pray those types of prayers, but you can see this is the end of the story as it's been given to us. In the end, what happens? God finally brings His judgment and His curse upon the wicked, and finally they receive their just due. Although most of you are probably familiar with the hymn, The Battle Hymn of the Republic. As a Southerner, I'm not a big fan. And that's why it's not in our hymn book. Because we have a southern denomination that we're a part of. (laughs) But for good reason, because it's not really a biblical hymn through and through. It's not really a Christian hymn so much as it's a political one. It starts out really well, but then becomes more northern as you read through it. Originally, it was written in 1861 at the time the Civil War was beginning. Julia Ward Howe wrote the hymn to encourage and motivate certainly the crowds, but particularly the Union soldiers going into battle. Most of the verses in the hymn clearly can be seen to encourage the troops, if you will. But it's the first stanza that stands apart from the others. Pure Scripture. Purely from that passage that David read earlier in Revelation chapter 14 which is describing the angels gathering together all the wicked throughout all the earth like a cluster of grapes, throwing them into this great wine press 
of the wrath of God and their blood being spilled everywhere. It's that image that we see along with the image of heaven when it's finally revealed. When heaven comes to earth and Christ's reign is seen clearly here in our midst, that's how the story ends. And so you can see why many believers around the world would be, how long, oh Lord, when? When will this finally happen? Your justice is eternal, but I don't see it. When? When will it come? That's what the author of the hymn had in mind when she said, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Clearly the references to the final day of judgment. All the tables are turned. All of God's enemies are cut down. All of God's people are vindicated. That's how the story ends. We get a small foretaste of that this morning in our text. Very small foretaste. <laughs> Where Haman finally is facing the wrath of the king of Persia and also facing the wrath of his maker, the Lord God Almighty. We'll see it even more clearly in the chapters that are still yet to come. In which not only Haman, but the Amalekites as a whole, the Agagites who have set their teeth and their hearts against the people of Israel will finally be destroyed for lifting up their hands against God and his people. Indeed, the whole story has already been written in advance. You know that, right? It's already completed. The story is not being written as we speak. It's already been written. The chapters are now unfolding as we read them. All of this will happen exactly as it has been written. Not a single detail will be left out. The problem is, like Esther, we're not privy <laughs> to all the details in advance. We don't always know what's happening. We, we can't always understand what the Lord is doing in our midst. Esther, again, we said last week, has no idea of the danger that her cousin Mordecai is in at this very moment that she's getting ready to prepare for the feast for the king. She has no idea about the gallows. She's isolated in her castle in the midst of her concubinage, in the midst of her slavery inside the king's palace she probably likely does not also does not know that mordecai has been paraded through the streets in the last number of hours all she knows is that she's still very very nervous about identifying herself with the people of god and pleading for their lives before this man who is oh so powerful and yet also erratic and self-centered and fickle, and all the above. The Greek historian Herodotus, I've mentioned him a couple times before, he tells of another promise that the same king made to another man who had come into his good grace as one that he had favored. His name was Pythias. And this was a man who had contributed greatly to the king's treasury, helping him fund his wars. And a man who had lavished him with hospitality on a number of occasions, he had four sons. And on one particular occasion, all four sons were called into battle on behalf of the king. And the king uh, offered to grant this man anything he wanted, basically. And what he asked for was to allow the oldest son to stay home, to take care of him in his old age, 
knowing that the other three might die in battle and that he would have no one to care for him. He was a widower. But this would not be any saving Private Ryan moment in history. Uh, when he asked for this request, the king was enraged by his betrayal for not supporting the cause of the kingdom. But as a result, he had made a promise to the man that he would give him what he had asked for. So he did. He didn't allow his son to go back into battle. Instead, he cut him down into two pieces and laid those two pieces on each side of a path. And he made the entire army, including the other three sons, walk through those two pieces to show what is required to be loyal to the king. This is the same king. Now, does Esther know about this incident? I don't know. But does she know something about the king? Definitely. This is not a man that you can trust to be rational. This is not a man that you can trust to do the right thing. He's always going to serve his own interests. So as a result, you can see why she has planned oh so carefully and delayed time and time again to try to find the right moment to say it in the right way to make sure that he receives it in the right manner. So once again, she's entertaining the king and Haman at her table. And it seems that the king is willing to do just about anything that she wants. He seems to be enraptured by her new confidence that she has found. And yet, at the same time, you still have this third wheel, this third party hanging around, eating and drinking with them. You're thinking, why in the world is this guy still here? In fact, you begin to think, well, maybe this is part of Esther's plan to to have him look like the third wheel who's always in between the two of them, causing some aspect of division when they should be having an intimate dinner together. But yet somehow he's always causing separation. Either way, as soon as their spirits are high and their bellies are full, the king asks Esther the same question a third time. What is your wish, O Queen Esther? It shall be granted. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Finally, Esther has got all her ducks in a row. Her nerves are gathered. She's ready to give a response, but yet she still qualifies that response, saying in the beginning, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king, the only difference now is now she's using personal pronouns. She's saying, if I found favor in your sight, O king. There's an intimacy that has developed over this game that she's been playing. Clearly, she has his eyes, she has his heart, and she's trying to play to that affection as a woman who has won his favor, hoping for her reward. Notice she gives a twofold response to his twofold promise, both a request as well as a desire she wants granted. Sure, he meant to have that interpreted synonymously, but she's taking it literally. Verse 3, she says, Let my life be granted me for my wish, let the life of my people be granted for my request. And then as she elaborates upon that request in verse 4, she says, for we have been sold, I and my people. Now, if there's ever any doubt that Esther would stand up for her people and go to bat for them, she's proving it right now. She has identified herself closer with them at the very moment of the greatest danger than any other time. She has laid out her cards on the table. She has taken the risk. She has walked by faith. She has clearly said, I and my people under God. 
So she's determined no matter what happens at this point, whatever happens to them will also happen to her. Clearly, she's identified herself with God's people. Notice, though, she's also using the exact language when she explains what has happened to her people as the language that was written in the original decree. She says that her people were set to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. The funny part about it is that the king probably would not be vexed by this whatsoever because he has no idea the wording that was written in the decree itself. For even though it was his seal from his ring, if you remember, that had put, uh, that had stamped the wax to send this edict out, he probably never has read it himself, has no idea what's in it, no idea who the people were that he's accused to bring judgment against. And yet at the same time, Haman knows the words very clearly because he was the one who penned them. And he's beginning to wonder, what's going on here? This isn't exactly what I thought it was when I was asked to spend time with the king and queen, supposedly to honor me in addition to honor her. He becomes concerned. Imagine he's drinking his wine and maybe begins to spill a sip or two. Starts to twitch in his chair a little bit. What's uh, Something's not quite right. But then she begins to go a little bit further. Explaining her concerns. Still cryptically, the king doesn't know what's going on. It's interesting though. Haman, Haman has no ability whatsoever to stop her at this point. Notice... If he were to interrupt at this moment when the king has asked her for the third time to tell what she wants, he would incur the, the king's wrath. In fact, if you, if you notice it, this is the first time in the story that we never hear a single syllable from Haman from now on. He doesn't talk anymore. No longer is he the active character in these events. Now he's the passive one who is being swept off his feet to go where he doesn't want to go. He's out of control for the first time. He's no longer the powerful one. Unlike in, in the previous accounts, which Haman is constantly on the move, he's deciding his own fate, seemingly almost willing his desires into reality, assuming that the king is going to give him whatever he wants, the fact that he already has built the gallows before even asking the king if he can kill the man that he's going to put on the gallows. But he assumes he'll get what he wants. But now, from now on, everything, he's lost that power. He's whisked away from his wife and friends before he even has a chance to hear any counsel that might be helpful to him in the midst of his trial and his dilemma. And the way it's described, the author almost makes it seem like he's being arrested, even though he's really being entertained at a dinner. He's taken quickly, swiftly out of his house to go to the king's palace. And now we're beginning to see that this passive character is trading places with Esther. Esther was the one who was taken against her will to the king's palace originally. Now he's being taken, and he's the one who has nothing to say. He's the one who's full of fear. The tables are beginning to turn. Uh, just hours before this, if you remember, he was very confident that he could manipulate the king. But now he's helpless. Helpless to hear the words that are being spoken. He can't do anything. He can't say anything. It's almost like he's been paralyzed all of a sudden. Nothing to say. Still, though, Esther's careful in how she says it because she knows that at any moment she could say the wrong word and all of this changes. 
she's very careful to explain that she knows something about the edict, the decree that has been passed, but she's very careful not to say that she knows he has anything to do with it. As if he is a third party in this altogether with no culpability. Notice she never once accuses the king of wrong. Never once even hints that he maybe is to blame for this. And he is, because he's the one who's given the ring to this guy in the first place that caused all this. But yet, she doesn't mention that. Instead, she continues to appeal to the the baseness of his own desire. She's constantly saying, if this happens, then it's going to hurt you, O king. It's going to affect you, O king. He's so self-centered, that's all she can appeal to. She says to him in the second part of verse 4, If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. The king loses something from his subjects, but our slavery is nothing to you. I mean, if you think about it, they're all slaves already, right? They're slaves of the king. Every one of them was taken against their will to Babylon and then taken against their will to different parts in the Persian Empire as well. Even Esther herself is a slave. She's a wife, yes, but she's still treated like a slave. She's still a concubine in many ways. And so she says, well, obviously it wouldn't make any difference to you if we were slaves or not, but you would lose so much, O king, if this were to go through. You would lose so many loyal subjects. You would lose so much tax revenue or whatever it is. She never hints in any way that he had anything to do with the fact. Although she says we have been sold, she never says who sells them. The king is the one who sells the Jews to Haman. Haman buys them at a price, and yet she doesn't mention it. She keeps darting her eyes back and forth between the king and Haman, who's still sitting there, helpless to do anything about it. While the king's anger continues to grow in rage as she continues to reveal more and more of the details, Haman is now visibly shaking in his seat. He has to be. (laughs) He knows exactly what's going on by now. Both men are physically moved by her words as the tension continues to build and build, and the king is so angry, he's losing his own interest. He finally blurts out in verse 5. Here's the, the pivotal moment. Who is this man? Where is he? Who has dared do this? You remember King David, after he had sinned, committed adultery, and killed Uriah? You remember the prophet confronting him. You know, it's always fun when prophets confront kings, or anyone for that matter. It's always fun when a pastor confronts people over their sin. We love doing it. It's so much fun, because people always respond so well. In this particular case, with King David, if you remember, Nathan can't talk to him directly, because he knows that if he does, he's going to die. So he has to tell him a story, a very sweet story, but one that has a bad ending because he starts telling me about this sweet little lamb that this man had cared for and loved all, you know, most of his life, and then all of a sudden this horrible man comes in and steals his lamb, right? And David finally goes, who is this man? What has he done? How dare he do this? And Nathan says, you're the man. He doesn't say it in the cool way. You're, you're the man. You're the man. Immediately David comes under conviction repents of his sin, pleads with the Lord once again. Can Esther do the same thing with King Ahasuerus? <laughs> Can she now say, you're the man, you're the wicked one who's caused all this. 
I don't think the king is as likely to repent as King David was. She knows this is not going to be a winning argument if she points it out. So she instead immediately, rapid gunfire says, instead, the foe, the enemy, the very wicked man, Haman. It's interesting, she still doesn't say whose foe that he is, whose enemy that he is, or how he's acted wickedly, but basically she's keeping it generic so that he's not just a foe and an enemy of the Jews or of her, but even of the king himself, you see. He's constantly appealing to the king's motives for his own self-interest. Now at this point, Haman's wine glass probably falls out of his hands altogether. (laughs) His chair about tips over frightened out of his mind, yet still entirely immobile like a deer in the headlights. I thought it was coming to a party. (laughs) The king's gaze now turns into fury and rage. He realizes that he's lost the trust of his most closest advisor. You would think at this moment the king would immediately call in the guards. But he doesn't. Doesn't know what to do. Again, keep in mind this entire story, the king has never, ever made a decision by himself. And now his most trusted advisor, he cannot be trusted to help him make a decision. So he runs. The king leaves the room, doesn't know what to do. He's in a quandary. He goes into the garden and is trying to figure out what is the next step to be taken. Haman, on the other hand, has to make a decision, and he has to make it quickly. If you think about it, he probably has three options. Number one, he can run after the king and go to the garden and try to make a plea with the king. Do you think that's going to work? The king's irate at this point. Not helpful. Number two, he can hightail it out of there and run as fast as he can. Probably not going to work. Immediately, he look even more guilty. The king is going to immediately send the guards after him to kill him. Then option number three, stay and plead with Queen Esther for your life. If you can perhaps sway her back to your side, maybe, just maybe, you'll live. There's one very important detail that I have to point out, though, at this point. With the king's sudden departure, Haman is now alone in the room with the queen of Persia. That's a problem, (laughs) Uh, protocol says he has to leave the room immediately when the king does. The law of the Medes and the Persians, you're not, allowed to lo- you're not allowed to be alone in the room with the king's wife. Not smart, right? And yet, he's forced into the matter. He's screwed. He has no other option. He has to do this, and that's what he does. He stays and, and tries to pick the worst of the three options. You have to understand the king is also between a rock and a hard place at the same time. For even though Esther never points out his sin, the king knows that he's responsible for all this. He knows that it's his seal that has ensured that this would happen. He also knows that he's promised Esther three times to grant what she's asked. How can he do that and not be culpable for this? And then on top of that, Haman is his most trusted advisor. He's just elevated him again, promoted him again. And now he's going to look like a complete schmuck because he's picking the worst people ever to be a fool and not to serve him with wisdom. 
This is supposed to be one of his most trusted men. Whatever he does, he also is going to be laughed at and scorned because of the decision he makes. So, and there's nothing in the text that tells us whatsoever that when he comes back into the room that the king has made a decision. Apparently he probably hasn't. He still has no idea what to do, but yet he's got to do something, so he starts walking back to the room to try to figure out what, what the deal is. But upon his return, immediately he sees Haman falling pathetically before the queen, prostrating, him, prostrating himself before her on her couch. Now, it's interesting because uh, our, our concept of a couch is you know, sort of that fluffy, cushiony thing that's up in the air a few feet off the ground, right? This is not the same kind of couch that uh, they had in mind. In fact, I, I was, in addition to trying to reading uh, some of these passages in the Hebrew, I'm also reading them in the Spanish now just to try to continue to work on my Spanish because you can only learn so much Spanish from Duolingo. You only learn about plane tickets and email and dumb things like that. In order to learn the good words, you have to go to the Bible and read the the, the translation there as well. And in Spanish, it never uses the word couch. It uses the word bed because that's effectively what it is. She's not laying on a couch. She's laying on a bed on the floor because that's how they ate. It's just like the Romans. In fact, if you think about it with Jesus celebrating the Lord's Supper with his disciples, it's not like da Vinci's painting. They're not all sitting there doing this and then pointing out and this and this. They're all laying down at a U-shaped table and they're laying on their side. Remember in John's Head is in the bosom of Jesus' chest. They're laying down. Esther is eating, laying down. So were Haman and the king. So when the king comes back into the room, he sees Esther on the floor with Haman on top of her. This doesn't look good, right? No matter what you think, it, it, it doesn't look good. In fact, uh, one Jewish commentator, ancient commentator, said that, uh, that this wasn't Haman's doing, but at the last moment, the angel pushed him, forced him to fall down upon Esther. I like the way he thinks, but I don't know if that's the case. I think he was just really that desperate, that pathetic at this point, that he has no idea what to do. He's begging for his life. He knows. He knows what's going to happen next if something doesn't change. How much does the king know at this point? Does the king suspect now that all the things that Haman was asking for for Mordecai was really for his own benefit? I mean, if you remember, he wants to wear the king's crown. He wants to wear the king's robe. He wants to be declared to be the greatest man in the empire for a day. He's fantasizing about all these things. What would hinder him in any way from fantasizing and being with his wife as well? This is a huge issue. It looks bad, again, from any perspective. Uh, maybe you read in the news recently, I think it was a couple weeks ago, um, you remember uh, Prince William and Duchess Kate Middleton? They had uh, gone to the opening of the new Top Gun movie with Tom Cruise. We normally don't care about this at all, but it, there was a, a faux pas that happened. <sighs> Get ready for this. Tom Cruise was walking with the two of them and they were about to go, I think, up two flights of stairs to get to uh, wherever the show was being held. So it was a very fancy movie theater, I guess. And all red carpet. And Prince William is walking along, and someone has got his attention. He's looking away, while they, but still walking forward while the other two are walking next to each other. And they're about to go up the steps. And immediately, 
Cruz is on this side and Kate and William are on this side. Immediately he grabs her hand and helps her up the steps. Again, keep in mind, you're not supposed to touch royals ever for any reason. Tom knows this. He does it anyway. Kate, according to the tabloids, has this look of horror, shock on her face. And then as soon as they get up to the top of the steps, you have to walk about another, it's probably like 10 steps before you go up the second flight. She conveniently has her purse in this hand. She immediately switches over to this hand so he can't take her hand again. And Tom goes, and then, you know, walks up the steps. William is oblivious, as usual, as most royal kings and princes are, I guess. Um, but it was such a hubbub, you know, because he dared to touch Duchess, Kate. What would come of this? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Why? Because the kings and the queens and the princes in England have no power whatsoever. All it is is a matter of speculation and talk and, and tabloids. That's it. Nothing would happen because of it. A little different in this situation. Royalty is everything in Persia. Not only is Haman touching her hand, he's laying on top of her. And if the king never had a good excuse to get rid of him, he certainly does now. He could not get rid of him because of the edict because the king signed the edict himself with the seal. Haman, as desperate as he is, has just given the king a reason to get rid of him. And that's what happens. He doesn't charge him for the edict. He charges him for taking liberties with his wife, even if he wasn't. It looks as if he were. Verse 8, the king says, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? What more could be said? The attendants know the mind of the king at this point. Immediately they put the covering over his face, which is the sign that he is to be executed, and he's immediately let out of the room. Obviously the charge is unjust because that's not what happened. That wasn't his motivation. That wasn't what he was doing. But the irony of this is so outstanding. First, Haman charges the Jews for a crime they did not commit, and then in turn, he is charged for a crime that he has not committed. Second, it's the very act of pleading for his life that caused his life to be taken from him. And third, the very one who wanted to kill the Jews for refusing to bow down to him is now bowing down before a Jewess. The tables have turned. Completely. All of this according to God's plan. And yet at the same time, even the pagan wise friends of his are foretelling this. God is even speaking through them. If you're daring to go against this man, his star will be raised while you will fall. And literally what happens? He's falling before Esther. He's fallen completely. To add insult to injury then, the king's eunuch who's helping to lead Haman out of the door. His, his name is Harbona. Well acquainted with Haman, knew of his underhanded ways, was quick to point out, oh, by the way, uh, this man has built a gallows outside of his house. It would be just perfect for you know, getting rid of him if you wanted to. Clearly, uh, Mordecai was not the only one who didn't want to bow before this man. Uh, there probably was an entire group of men ready to get rid of him, but couldn't do it because they didn't have the power to do it. Now, this 75-foot gallows that's sitting in this standing in the house of, uh, in the property of Haman, is, is ready to take his own life. 
The king hears of this detail the first time the king makes up his own mind. He says, kill him. Kill him now. Hang him on the same gallows. And immediately Haman is taken away to be impaled on the very structure they designed to kill Mordecai the Jew. And all of his sons are there to see it. There would be no trial. There would be no counsel, no lawyers, only justice, and that straight away. We don't get justice that quickly here. <laughs> Just as in the days of Noah, the people were eating and drinking, and then suddenly the flood came and destroyed them all. Just as in the days of Lot, again, the people were eating and drinking, and then suddenly fire fell from the sky and consumed them all. In the same way, Haman is eating and drinking, and then suddenly his life is snuffed out. How quickly his justice has come. This is what it will be like, Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns to earth. No more pleading. No more excuses. But quick and sudden judgment. Notice at the end of verse 10, the consequence of Haman's earthly judgment. We're told that upon his suffering and death, that the wrath of the king abated, or in some versions you might say it was appeased. For what more could he do to the man? who had undermined his kingdom, who had molested his wife, who had grasped at equality with the king. Ahasuerus is still just a man. All he can do is kill him. And that's what he does. And then it's over, and he's satisfied. But remember when Jesus says in the Gospels, says, do not fear the man who can kill the body but fear rather the one who is able to throw both soul and body into hell. It's interesting that the, the choice of terms that are used here and the, the, the words about how the, the wrath of the king is abated. Um, when we learn about the wrath of God in Scripture, Psalm 7, verse 11 says this, but God is a righteous judge. He feels indignation every day. He feels wrath every day. So although Haman's earthly misery comes to an end the moment that he is impaled upon this pole, this gallows that he is hung on, the moment he dies, he enters into a more miserable judgment from the Lord God Almighty himself, whose anger is not abated with the death of the wicked. The very concept of hell as it's been revealed to us in Scripture, is given to us to help us to understand the infinite holiness of God. You cannot appease God's anger merely with death. Because God is an eternal being, He will continue to have anger every single day against the wicked. It never dies. Because of God's infinite justice, infinite holiness. I know it's something that a lot of people don't like to hear, but it's true. It's, we're not like God. I mean, think about the king in this particular... The king's not holy at all. He's only making this decision for his own sake. He's not even... He doesn't even care about what happens to the Jews. He really doesn't. God's anger flows from his righteousness, flows from his holiness, flows from his justice. 
Which is why we are not ashamed to preach about hell because it's the truth. The problem is, as I told you last week, we all seem to think that we're Esther in this story. We're more like Haman, are we not? Think about it. How many of us in this room have not fantasized that we were the king? <laughs> now, when I say the king, I don't mean like Ahasuerus. I mean like God. How many of us have pretended to wear the crown ourselves and said, nope, it's my way. I'm going to do it the way I want. I'm going to determine good for myself. I'm going to do and determine evil for myself. I'm going to wear the royal robe. I'm going to sit on my own throne. I'm going to be paraded around the city. It's all about me. It's about my kingdom. It's about my will. And yet God says, how dare you? Rebel. Treason. It's all sin is. You're trying to overthrow the very king of the universe and pretend that you're the king or queen for the day. Scripture says all of us are naturally children of wrath because of our sin. And as the hymn says that we too are like grapes of wrath, ready to be thrown into the winepress of God's fury because we have dared to raise our hand against God's reign, his supremacy, his sovereignty, his will, his authority, and have declared to live for ourselves instead. The good news and I do want to give you the good news, is that the story is not done with the judgment. We do have a helper, and this is where Esther comes in. Esther is not meant to make us look at ourselves. Esther is meant to make us look for a Savior, someone who will be a mediator, someone who, who will stand up for the sinner, for the unrighteous. Think of it. Who is, who is, she, who is she mediating for? Are the Israelites or the Jews, are they so much greater in righteousness? than the Persians and Haman? Why are they there in the first place? Do you remember? Because they all rebelled against God. They all sinned with egregious wickedness against the Lord, and He wanted to destroy every single one of them, but gave them grace. Sent them overseas to live in another country to humble them. They, too, should have been destroyed. It's only by grace that they weren't. It's only by grace that God raises up a mediator to speak on their behalf to plead for mercy for them. Esther is meant to point us to Christ because that's the role that she's playing here. She's pointing us to one that will identify with us, identify with us in our sin, and say, I'm one of them. If you love me, O King, have mercy upon them. Is that not what Jesus does for us? Even more so, obviously, the difference between Esther and Christ is that Esther's not just pleading for her people. Christ goes a step further and, and dies for his people. Instead of Haman, us, dying on the pole, on the cross, Christ himself sheds his own blood that we might be reconciled unto the king. This is the gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And what do sinners deserve? Not just death, not just the miseries of this world, but hell forever. How is God's infinite justice 
and wrath appeased. Not through death, but solely through the righteousness of Christ. Through his perfect righteous life, his perfect death on the cross. Only through Christ is God's anger ever appeased. If you do not come through Christ, God will never stop being angry with you over your sin. He will bring you into judgment, and that judgment will be eternal. The good news is that Christ came to die for the most heinous, the most wicked men and women on earth, but only through the grace of God. As he humbles us, points us to one whose righteousness is worthy of God as we come before him by faith. I encourage you, if you don't know where you stand with God, I don't do this merely to make people afraid. <laughs> because when I hear this message, I'm not afraid at all. Because I know I have a Redeemer. I know I have a Savior. I know where I stand. I know that for the rest of my life, what God has begun, He's going to finish. He has saved me to the uttermost. Where do you stand? Do you know that Savior? Do you have that confidence? Or are you like Haman, still shaking in your seat, wondering what's going to be said next? Christ has come to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, Paul says. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us. As we've heard a, a very sobering message from your word, uh, not just the judgment of a particular man in a particular area of the world, but the judgment upon all, all men in all parts of the world. Not just in this age, but in the age to come. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know and to believe in the reality of the eternal life as well as the eternal death. Father, help us to know and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us repentance. Give us humility. Give us a desire to know the one who has made us, the one who has redeemed us, and the one who has promised himself to us forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.